welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. And this month, we have been talking about the concert film. It's been a very interesting month. Our scheduling's been kind of a very weird. So you're on here two times, Thomas. But um, it was still a very kind of, it was interesting to see kind of how we all, everything's kind of connected. So from your perspective, what have we talked about? On the, with a concert film this month and like what what have you seen i guess is the thing well i guess something we've been kind of diving into is is can you tell a story with it, it yeah. that's that's something we've we've really tried to and and when you've had david on as well you know with with stop making sense and whatnot it's like what how how are these telling a story and how mm. do the filmmakers go about them because it, it's kind of like we discussed on the last waltz episode like you can just shoot a concert yeah um and and not tell any kind of story and and i don't necessarily consider that a concert film but you can also uh do like today which which leans a little bit more into i feel like documentary filmmaking yeah uh but but it's all it all falls under the same umbrella but yeah. I, I think kind of the the idea is you you want to tell tell some sort of story and and some of the more creative ones uh do that in, in in pretty interesting ways and uh you can do it kind of ambiguously as we discussed with the last waltz but but i think it's there for for all the ones that kind of that really stand out it is some sort of storytelling and some sort of narrative there yeah and i think the big thing that i i learned uh this month and we'll kind of discuss as we go on and kind of at the very end we kind of asked about what we learned this month i i didn't really expect the time capsule aspect of the concert film. I don't mm -hmm. know why. Cause like, I think with everything we've talked about, and this is the Patreon stuff included that we've talked about so far. And we'll talk about la next week um, is the idea of how a lot of these movies are coming at specific points in a, in a career, but also a specific point in say American culture or whatever. But a lot of them are going through these transitional periods. It's like, we stopped making sense was, uh, the the band right after they broke up from their longtime producer or if it's sign of the times with prince where it's prince after he broke up with his band the revolution or if mm -hmm. it's the last waltz they're about to do a breakup or i think with today's movie with summer of soul um this transitional period in black culture and black music and it's very much a here is what is happening in this moment at this time um and now with this one, the difference between this, this movie and the other three that we talked about this month is we have a uh, the idea of hindsight with it. And we're adding mm -hmm. more context around why it's a transitional period, why it's yeah. important to history. Um, in this case, why why was it not seen for 50 years or whatever? Um, but yeah, and I didn't really expect that coming in of how it'd be. Like you said, it's, it's very much how can you tell a story through a concert? Because some kind of concert films I think don't hold up as well are the ones that are like, here is just a concert film. They're playing a concert. But I think the best ones really have that somewhat of a storytelling aspect to it if it's not mm -hmm. making sense about the creation of the band of Talking Heads. Um, or even if it's, we talked about, I talked about on Patreon with the Elvis special of how it's kind of this story of Elvis's career is the thing um, that, mm -hmm. can, that can happen. But yeah, that's kind of what we've been discussing this this month. Uh, it's been again a very interesting month, just of how so many things, some of these things have connected together. And I didn't really come into it expecting to talk about the time capsule aspect. I thought we were just gonna talk about cool music films, is the mm -hmm. thing, and it's it's turned into this. Um, but yeah, so today we're talking about Summer of Soul, 
or when the Re- revolution could not be televised. And Summer of Soul is a documentary concert film about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival uh, that took place uh, in Harlem. And it's the, the film was directed by Amir Questlove Thompson, known as Questlove from The Roots, and kind of the band leader, drummer of that, and, and drummer on The Tonight Show and all that stuff. But he kind of came in and directed this movie, looking back at this time period of this festival that includes such phenomenal names as Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, Nia Simone, Fifth Dimension, The Staple Singers, another appearance by The Staple Singers this month after the last waltz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Glass Night in the Pips, uh, Sly the Family Stone, and just several, several uh, big names uh, uh, and of this era. But also, you kind of the big two people to kind of talk about. Um, they'll be a, a part of this narrative today is Tony Lawrence, who was the kind of MC and creator of the Harlem Cultural Festival, and then Hal Tolchin, who was the kind of the, the the director who shot the footage of this festival that was able to be found decades later uh to be used for this documentary so i had watched this when it kind of right after it hit streaming because it hit streaming on hulu first it's now currently streaming on disney plus um so you can see it but i saw it then and i think it was in my top 10 for last year was the thing because i really really enjoyed it the first time viewing it but what because i don't think you'd seen it before Thomas. i'm not yeah no i'd always uh wanted to see it it was one when it came out, um, I was still go. It was it was just just pre COVID, right? It was like 2019, well, is no, that it twenty nineteen. No, it was twenty. It was last year, twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Oh yeah. It was Time when I was flies. just. It was when I was just going back into theaters. I was about to say I was seeing a lot of movies, and they were showing ads for it like pretty yeah. regularly, and and trailers for it like before a movie and i was like oh yeah. I'd, I'd really like to see that and they i think they did a pretty good job marketing it of being like you know it's gonna be like really high quality sound and you're yeah. gonna want to see it in a movie theater and like i had every intention of doing it and then i just yeah missed it and um and then you know never had, had always it's, it's always been on my watch list of like oh I, yeah. I know i will enjoy that because that's one of my favorite periods of music hands down and and so uh yeah and so that was something when it came up this month and we were like oh what should we do i was like this will be a good uh, light a fire under my ass to to watch this one because <laughs> I, I i do really want to so um so yeah I, I, I saw it for the first time uh this week yeah and and i guess what were your initial thoughts kind of with it i mean it's just it just uh, it's looks great it's yeah. it's been especially to know it just kind of sat in somebody's basement for a long time it's like yeah. incredibly well restored and then it's just a lot like the whole time i'm watching it i'm like how did they book this lineup this is yeah insane it's yeah. it's such an incredible and i mean i guess back in back then it's the same deal with woodstock it was like when music festivals when they were a little bit more rare, it was a bigger deal, and you could you could actually book everyone that you wanted to be there instead of being like, "Here's three headliners," and then a bunch of people you don't yeah. really care about seeing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it is it is absolutely insane the the lineup that they have there, and it's it's really incredible to get to see all this footage of them. Yeah, and we'll go into kind of how that come came about because it was. I don't have stories of like, this is how we got Stevie wonder, but Mm -hmm. I will say with this festival, I think kind of the thing that's not fully portrayed as much in the, in the, in the concert film, the documentary is that the festival was something that had been going on for a few years and it was able to build basically. Mm. 
Um, oh yeah, that definitely doesn't come through. Yeah, and and so that and that's we'll, we'll kind of get into it a little bit later with that. But yeah, it's, what's interesting again, kind of the the comparison and contrast of it is like, and they they do make reference to this in the documentary that like it's taking place the same time as Woodstock, which is like a hundred mm-hmm. miles away in upstate New York. Um, there is a predominantly white uh, concert and um, and kind of how that became the the chosen festival to to kind of champion um but this festival basically with this many names kind of Mm -hmm. drifted into obscurity um for 50 years basically and it became kind of the the holy grail of footage once people found out this might exist somewhere um, Mm -hmm. out there um but yeah so yeah coming back to this this time again still just it's and looking at the kind of the context we've been talking about concert films um it's a good kind of ending point for our month because or ending point at least on our main podcast here um of kind of combining all those ideas we've talked about where it's it's providing a story uh for this era for these kind of people and i think even like i said individually how they're able to create kind of craft small stories about like Stevie wonder and Stevie wonder kind of being like, Oh yeah, I was in a period where like, I realized I needed to change up my artistry in some way. Mm -hmm. And, and Stevie wonder is someone who is kind of, I don't don't know if I would say underrated. He might be because he, he's someone that has such an eclectic discography yeah, I think I think he's some. Yeah, I wouldn't say underrated, but I think he gets kind of pigeonholed by yeah. his number ones, and yeah. not a lot of people realize, yeah, how how many different. I mean, especially once you get back into when he was a, a child star, it's like how many different eras of music he adapted to and like dominated. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's I, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, because I think I think I think to the mainstream is what I, mean. I think music heads know that like he was such a vastly talented but but most people most of the number ones i feel like most people would know are his kind of like pop funk era like very superstitious it's it's either that motown era or pop funk like yeah it's superstition or whatever uh but pop or like the pop stuff of like up to uh uptight everything's all right or whatever mm -hmm. um but then but then you get into the 70s where it's the like inverge or intervisions and songs of the key of life and talking book and just music mm-hmm. and just phenomenal albums um that once you really listen to it just how uh uh masterful his kind of career has been um but yeah he's going through kind of a this thing and you have kind of the the beginnings of sly and the family stone who mm-hmm. i think feels like the most uh woodstock um <laughs> band on this lineup um and they 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 didn't play at woodstock right i'm not or did they play at woodstock let me see i want to say i feel like yeah they played at woodstock yes they they were one of the last people booked for woodstock it says okay so they're with a few that played woodstock and this and and the uh harlem cultural festival Mm. um but yeah you see kind of this transition of period which is i think just kind of fascinating um and 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 quest love amir thompson really kind of showcases in, in a really uh again provides the the context that you need to kind of understand the festival and we'll talk about how mm-hmm. that was a that was a decision to do you provide kind of talking heads or do you just let the let the the film speak for itself um but we'll talk about that later so let's dive into kind of history of how 
this got made and it's it's a as i told thomas before we recorded start recording was that this is a very different structure than we usually do with this because um we're not talking about the film itself in the beginning here we're talking about how the festival itself was created and everything and so the film will come back come in later uh uh in the episode but a lot of this kind of information came from like la times articles rolling stone articles and kind of all over so when talking about the summer of soul movie we need to rewind the clocks back to the 1960s and take a closer look into a popular new york nightclub singer tony lawrence and originally from saint kitts in the caribbean lawrence started singing in the 1950s in new york and he started to gain a gain momentum in 1961 when he had a somewhat successful record called you got to show me which peaked at number 114 on the billboard pop charts now lawrence gained a reputation as being a flashy individual who was good looking had stylish clothes and had an appetite for sports cars motorboats and world travel People began calling him the Continental Dreamboat was his nickname uh, to people who knew him. Lawrence would soon begin touring the world, playing in Jamaica, nightclubs in Paris, and various cities worldwide. He would also briefly appear in such movies as Dr. No and The Palm Broker, like kind of small uh, uh, appearances Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases. And he was was just gaining popularity. One of his biggest fans at the time was actually Sammy Davis Jr., who considered him a first-rate singer. Um, first-rate nightclub singer. In 1965, Lawrence started doing community work in Harlem at a local recreation center, helping fundraise projects that provided money to the community. He would use his popularity as a nightclub singer to help fund a playground in the neighborhood, um, and he would soon begin organizing small concerts in the parks in the surrounding area. After the election of Republican Mayor John Lindsay in 1966, Lindsay would offer several parks department jobs to locals in the black neighborhoods because the previous regime had given those jobs to relatives and relatives and family and friends who had no interest in helping the areas. It was just, Mm -hmm. it was a money, it was a paycheck for them. And it was, it was a, a white regime that was not interested in kind of helping with these black neighborhoods. Soon Lawrence began working with the city's parks department, which made it easier for him to set up block parties to promote local artists. During the summer months of 1967, Lawrence started hosting free events in Harlem, including boxing matches, a fashion show, a a go-kart Grand Prix, the first Miss Harlem contest, and concerts featuring soul, gospel, calypso, and Puerto Rican music. For the concerts, Lawrence created a lineup of about 30 local entertainers, and this would become known as the first Harlem Cultural Festival in 1967. After the summer was over, Lawrence continued performing in clubs in New York to kind of fund his lifestyle, uh, but he continued to organize the second Harlem Cultural Festival for 1968, and this festival ended up bringing in more popular artists of the time, kind of older artists with Count Basie, Bobby Blue Bland, and Mahalia Jackson. By the end of the summer festival, certain nights were bringing in at least 25,000 people a night, basically, or, or a day. Um, Lawrence soon saw the possibility for this festival to grow even more. He didn't just want to bring in audiences and artists from Harlem or even just New York. He wanted to bring people in from all over America and even the world. Right after the 68 festival finished, Lawrence spent, spent the next year talking with lawyers, businesses, and agencies to secure funding to make the 1969 festival a thing and possibly the biggest thing they'd ever done. Lawrence would line up a corporate sponsor, which would be Maxwell House, and it was around this time that documentarian Hal Tolchin 
began act became actively actively involved in the festival. And Tolchin initially filmed. There's no there's no evidence of this, but he initially filmed the '68 festival as well for a possible <laughs> documentary. Um, but in '69, he became more involved in the process of creating the festival. And he helped create the stage at the festival, which I think talks about in the documentary, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. at Mount, Mount Morris Park in Harlem, uh, which is now Marcus Garvey Park. He said he couldn't light the stage at all, so he built the stage facing the west so he could have light all afternoon to film. Um, before working on this, Tolchin had directed commercials, game shows, and Vegas-type entertainment specials. He was not really specialized in directing concerts or anything geared towards black music or black audiences. So because of the funding and the Maxwell Coffeehouse sponsorship and the popularity of the 1968 festival, many artists were wanting to play at the festival. Reverend Jesse Jackson said that people wanted to go to Harlem to be a part of this. And also it was kind of, even though it wasn't the first festival after the, the after uh, Dr. King's assassination, it was kind of becoming the one year remembrance of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and so people were seeing that as this kind of celebration of the leaders they had lost over these past few years. Um, before we go to favorite scenes, I'm going to jump into onset life real quick so we can talk about favorite scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival started on Sunday, Sunday, June 29th, 1969 at 3 p.m. at Mount Morris Park. And the plan was to have a total of six free concerts to be held to the end of August. As the festival was being planned, the NYPD refused to provide security for the events, and this resulted in the security being provided by a number of members from the Black Panther Party. Um, Along with the Fifth Dimension, Sly and the Family Stone was one of the first groups to perform during the summer-long festival. Uh, For the the first first day's uh, theme was Broadway and Harlem. (laughs) <laughs> is what it was. And the Fifth Dimension mm-hmm. and Sly and the Family Stone were, were the ones that were kind of headlining. Uh, uh, Sly and the Family Stone saxophonist Jerry Martini said the event was hotter than hell. Uh, yeah, atten- I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, in the There's m- a shot. I think it's June. when the I think it's when the pips are leaving the stage and, you know, they're in like full suits and one of them yeah. like goes to wave through the crowd and he is like sweated through the armpit of his yeah. like of his three piece suit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's intense. Um uh, festival attendee Ethel Betty Beatty, uh, Ethel Betty Barnes uh, said that it was so overcrowded, people were sitting in trees, it was bo- boiling hot, but not one ounce of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but according to Sly and the Family Stones drummer Greg Rico, who was performing with the flu that day, um, said the Harlem crowd did not immediately take to the funk rock music of Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, Arico stated that we didn't go over real well in the beginning. People weren't familiar with our style in 1969. We weren't a conventional Harlem soul band or anything that, that, it, that they liked. We really had to work for it that day. Reports said the audience was almost motionless during the band's early songs in the performance. But once the band began performing Everyday People, Dance the Music, and I Want to Take You Higher, the crowd was completely sold on Sly and the Family Stone. Which is kind of stated in the documentary where they're like, we didn't know who the hell this guy was. Mm-hmm. And we completely fell in love with him by the end of it, or the band and by the end of it. Uh, as the weeks went on, the Harlem Cultural Festival became a place for the people of Harlem to voice their opinions on the progress or lack of progress they were having in the country. Um, when the July 20th Soul Theme show, which featured Glass Knight and the Pips and Stevie Wonder, it was announced the U.S. had just landed on the moon 
and the crowd quickly roared with boos. Uh, the film would also show this sentiment as they interviewed attendees and other people in Harlem saying, why are you spending money on a trip to the moon when people in neighborhoods like Harlem were suffering from a lack of funds? The next week in New York Amsterdam news, which was the longest running black, which is the longest running black newspaper in America. An editorial said yesterday, the moon tomorrow, maybe us on the August 17th show, the next to last one of the summer lineup, Tony Lawrence invited 200 protesters on stage to voice their frustrations about a state building that was being built in Harlem. As someone argued later, we need a, we need a high school, not a state building. Mm-hmm. During that same weekend, about 100 miles away from Harlem, as we said, the famous Woodstock Festival was being put on. And when looking at these events in hindsight, in terms of festival planning and aftermath, uh, the Harlem cultural successful is probably more success, successful, at least in terms of planning. Um, Stuart Cosgrove would later write in Harlem 69, the young, wealthy white entrepreneurs made a monumental hash of planning while a black-run public event running over six Sundays smoothly came together with no significant trouble, no arrest, and no record of public inconvenience. Also, I must mm-hmm. say, no deaths as well, because I believe there was two deaths at Woodstock when that festival happened. Um, yep. So, yeah, with that, let's go to favorite scenes. So, Thomas, what is one of your favorite scenes in this in this movie i mean it opens with with stevie wonder which is just a great way to to kind of dive into it but all the stevie wonder footage there's later on there's just kind of a jam session with him and it's just incredible to watch him go on the piano it's it's just like you know even when he's jamming it it doesn't look like there's any rhyme or reason to like how he's hitting the keys but like he's he's always he never like gets out of key or anything at one point he kind of like loses the keyboard with one of his hands and somebody runs up and just like puts his hand back on the keyboard and he doesn't skip a beat he's just like right back into it yeah i mean all of his stuff is fantastic i mean him playing the drums in the opening is Mm -hmm. is amazing and you're like oh stevie wonder can play the drums because really known for piano but he was just this kind of he is this um amazing musician uh with everything um yeah stevie wonder's great i think to kind of to tie us in the last waltz um when we talked about Scorsese and how his voice is present in this movie, I think in a more subtle way, I think uh, Questlove's voice is very present in this movie. I mean, the first kind of thing you see is our first thing you hear is actually, I think Questlove's voice or one of the first Mm -hmm. things you hear when he's talking to, um, or he's talking to the first interviewee. um, Yeah. Musa uh, Jackson. I apologize if I I mispronounce that name. Um, who's watching the footage and he's kind of talking with him about it, but he, his voice is, and so it's interesting kind of seeing his voice present. And he even talked about later how like it was, it felt almost like serendipitous that the opening performance he, he shows is Stevie wonder on drums. Cause quest love is a drummer. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of stating, this is what like, I, I'm the one who's kind of showing you uh, this piece, this piece of history that's been kind of locked away for so many years mm-hmm. um yeah I, I i what i love is is kind of the the genuine nature of the people in the crowd because early on you notice it more because they show the crowd a little bit but when bb king's performing like they keep kind of the crowd and you have just these kids who, like see the camera and start like making faces like just kind of <laughs> like it just it's funny just like you could see Questlove sifting through this footage and just find these kind of cool 
kind of sweet reaction shots of this crowd. I even love when the when when David Ruffin's performing and Ruffin like points up to the guy in the tree, says something to the guy in the tree. <laughs> he's got a sweeter love than the got a sweeter song than the birds in the tree, and he's like, you yeah. know what that's about, and points up to that guy. <laughs> this guy in the tree. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think what Questlove does here uh, too is smart with the editing. Is that I think what you the easy or the how about this the tradition or, or the, the the cliche way or maybe the expected way to kind of edit this movie is to try to edit in a more modern way but i like that he uses very like a lot of dissolves in this movie and makes it more of the era mm-hmm. is the thing it makes it more like a television special i mean i think of, of elvis the comeback special we talked i talked about was like there's a lot of dissolves a lot of kind of interesting dutch angles like randomly that they'll throw in there um and it feels very much of the era of the late 60s the thing which i think is a very smart thing to do with this kind of movie to to, to make it feel like it literally was just like plucked from this era and no one's touched it since mm-hmm. is the thing um but what's not what's what, what's another scene that you have um I well just to kind of go back to the editing of it I do yeah, I do yeah. really like the way too that it's structured and almost you know especially for us for this podcast and and being like a genre study yeah. of like all the all the, the 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 history and kind of future of of musical genres that have specifically come from African American music and yeah. and have gone on to be kind of pioneered by them so you've got blues you've got gospel and then kind of with that leading into Motown. And mm. I, I like that they kind of talk a little bit about how Motown was kind of engineered to be uh, black music palatable for white audiences. Yeah. And and then that kind of turns into funk. And, and like we we're saying with Sly and the Family Stone, like even even the people there maybe weren't ready for funk yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, Your kids um, are going to love it. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and 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 talking about kind of the way everybody got pushed back, I, I think it's really interesting. I think that they include that interview with the uh, the group that does um, the gospel group. Um, uh, what, uh, what? The Edward Hawkins singers? Yes, that they kind yeah. of talk about that they got yeah. pushed back within their church for doing yeah. like pop gospel. Like, um, yeah. And, you know, just, just how everything kind of and all music in general kind of starts with something traditional and then becomes uh popular and becomes marketable and you can make money off of it and 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 then it turns and then you take that influence and you turn it into something new and and kind of groundbreaking and and it just goes and goes and goes like that and i think he does a really great job in in the editing of this especially knowing that it was like you know a, a full summer of shows that he's putting together i think he does yeah. a really good job of grouping it kind of as this journey through american music genres yeah because like someone like sign the family stone like he was one of the first bands to perform but he he kind of puts some more in the middle and then kind of the, as the big finale mm-hmm. um to kind of showcasing maybe the future of what music and, and culture would be post this like this this period or whatever which is why i think sly kind of ends the movie um. Yeah, I, I think it was interesting when they were talking about the Edwin Hawkins singers because it, it, it's that's one of the few times that cuts to interviews of the singer or person, the band of that time period. I guess is the mm-hmm. thing because most times they're they're like bringing in like uh, members of the Fifth Dimension or um, 
one of the other or, or they have Mavis Staples voice over something and you have Stevie Wonder. That mm-hmm. was one of the few times it actually shows like them in that um in that era. But I think mm-hmm. it was talking about that when and kind of the Edwin Hawkins kind of feeling that they were not included in certain areas of their life. And I think the one of the more emotional moments is probably uh when the fifth dimension is talking and with uh Marilyn McCool um or Marilyn McCoo who is essentially talking about how a lot of people didn't accept them in black culture because they were this mix of genres if it was it was r&b but it was also like broadway and pop and their voice kind of sounded at the as they said were, were they had white voices or whatever and and she talked about mm-hmm. how like i didn't know you could put a color on a voice was the thing um and it was and it's still even today when watching or when watching her 50 years later she still gets very emotional talking about this period of how this was a very kind of landmark moment for them as individuals but them as a group as well um mm-hmm. to be accepted by their their culture and i think that's the big thing about this festival is that it allows people allows musicians and artists who at that point weren't seen as part of i guess the culture to come in with love and respect and kind of people fall in love with their work and that's the things that that cultural festival is trying to show is the wide variety of black music and black culture and that's why it's it was yeah. divided by night by these different kind of themes um and then quest love has continued that with this movie of kind of breaking it up of like showing you here is here is we're not just one thing we're, uh, uh, it's not a monolith in some way it's like it's 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 a variety of different things of different types of music and different type of cultures um, even by adding in the Puerto Rican kind of side of of, of Harlem with um, with some of these bands, um, but yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a, a it showcases the variety in Harlem, but also within Black culture. And I think that emotional beat of Fifth Dimension is great. Um, I think one of the 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 bigger uh, performances or or just kind of the showstopping performances is probably Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples. Mm-hmm when they sing precious Lord, take my hand. And mm-hmm. that's when it kind of brings in that Dr. King assassination um, kind of element when they have Reverend Jesse Jackson talking and kind of mm-hmm. providing the context of his assassination. And they're kind of honoring him that day. And one of the last, the basically the last thing he said to um, to one of his friends was that he wanted to, hear precious lord take my hand at dinner that night or whatever mm-hmm. and now it becomes this emotional heart of this movie 50 years later um and and i think Questlove said it was kind of the that was the midpoint because he saw it as the passing up the torch from one generation to the next when mahalia jackson lets mavis staples sing and then they start singing together in mm-hmm. harmony basically um it's a beautiful moment yeah uh, do you have another scene or, or element you wanted to discuss that you liked? Um, you know, to go back, you were talking about kind of cutting to the crowd. I love that that scene that he um, that Questlove includes in there where they kind of they're like, you know what? Come on past the barriers. Come on up a little bit closer. Yeah. And people start coming in. And he's like, all right, all right, slow down. That's enough. And everybody just does. 
It's yeah. great. Having having watched uh, Woodstock 99 earlier oh, this year, God. it makes me, it's very refreshing to just yeah. see a very, very well-behaved and civil uh, music festival. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah. Let's not, let's not ruin, let's not ruin this, basically. Unlike the, yeah. Even, even with Woodstock 69, you have people who are similar, that would do crazy stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, when there there's, they touch on occasionally the kind of the legacy of this, not just the the musical legacy of 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 this uh specific uh festival but also mm-hmm. the the social political legacy of this festival and um it is it is kind of funny looking at it <laughs> sorry sorry to any uh boomers who are listening to the podcast right now um it is kind <laughs> of funny to to look at at how positive the the legacy of of this has been you know it's and obviously they didn't immediately achieve civil rights but I, I do i like the way that they kind of tie it into uh the civil rights movement and and you know uh, I, I really was was so enthralled every time they cut back to the writer from the New York Times uh, mm-hmm. for her to kind of contextualize it in a point of like civil rights and culture. And uh, and it's just so funny to think about it in ties to Woodstock and what a dud the like free love uh, generation was, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know looking back that that went uh, about the opposite direction of where they intended it to all go. Um, yeah. Once you got into the eighties, but uh, yeah. So I, I just think that's, it's such a funny contrast specifically to Woodstock and the, the idea that, that, you know, it was, they, they talked to the guy who cut, tried to package it as uh black woodstock and then was yeah. like well nobody nobody really wanted that so then it just kind of died and and the footage sat around and yeah you know it's it's like ultimately this was probably so much more impactful and yeah. and positive than, than woodstock itself was yeah i mean even i mean i haven't ventured in this kind of uh history of this but this is another kind of festival time was watt stacks and uh Watt stacks and Watts was like stacks records was putting on that was kind of considered the black Woodstock, but yeah, it's like, it, it's again, it's like, it's because I, I think with this, it's stronger because people are coming to celebrate the music, of course, but also culture. Mm-hmm. And we got a Woodstock. It's like, yeah, you're celebrating free love, which is not really a culture. Um, <laughs> And you are celebrating music. And granted, I'm not discrediting the performances of Woodstock. I think the performances of Woodstock are amazing. Yes, fans, yes, yes, yes. I'm not discrediting anyone who played at Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm discrediting uh, the politics of the yes. of the free love generation. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I because th- I always I always believe that Monterey Pop is the better version of what Woodstock wanted to be because it's a mm-hmm. more smaller, intimate, and it's not. Um, Monterey Pop is, I think, not really made in. Uh, I, I mean, it's like Woodstock. It's like it, it feels more like it's trying to make money and trying to capitalize on what was happening in that moment. I think Mario yeah. Pop was out of, that was out of a pureness of the music and the love of the music. And I think with this, it's the same exact thing. Where in both cases, it's more of a hangout type festival, and where you can walk around and enjoy all these different things that are happening. Like, like I think they still did other things that were not just the concert. It was the Miss Harlem uh, festival or concert or uh, event was one night of of this festival. They had other other things to celebrate 
their neighborhood and community. Mm-hmm. And Woodstock, again, it's it's about the people who are creating it, who are more looking at, at a money making mm-hmm. thing. It kind of it feels like when looking back on it. Yeah. Um, maybe it wasn't, but it feels like when I look at some of the documentaries they had, um, the people who were trying to create it were trying to make money and trying to make it an enterprise, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, enough about that. Um, but yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that Questlove, as you said, is, is trying to tell the story of history of black music through the country with bringing in like the, the kind of step by step of we go from blues and gospel into Motown into experimental music like psychedelic and Afrocentric type music. It's a it's a lot of variety. Um, I also love when talking about the the political aspects of it is how it doesn't shy away from the differences within the community and the culture or the viewpoint. So you have Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and even Reverend Al Sharpton has talks about who's interviewed on the documentary, kind of talking about the nonviolent way of protesting and kind of the, the Dr. King uh, viewpoints or what was seen as the viewpoints at that time. Um, but then you have someone like Nia Simone who yeah. is very different and yeah. what she says at the end um, of how uh, of her view of how to protest and and how to, how to take use your voice um, or use your actions the way to make a statement. Um, but yeah, it, it, you see a, a variety of viewpoints, a variety of music, and it's really just a kind of a fascinating mm-hmm. watch because of that. Yeah, and it, and it also it doesn't shy away from you know they 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 talk about the drug epidemic and and yeah. I think it's the 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 guy that they're they're talking to I I love the moment where he's he's talking about going to see um uh the what's the the guy's name from the Temptations but um, David David Ruffin David Ruffin yeah he's talking about going to see David Ruffin he's like me and all my guys showed up we were all like suit and tie suit, we suit, were all suit like, tie guys yeah yeah we we're all suit and tie guys and then they come back to him later when Sly and Family Stone played and he was like. I saw Sly and the Family Stone play. I was not a suit and tie guy anymore. Like that was like yeah. just seeing them up on stage and seeing that new style, like completely ushered in a new type of fashion. But then that's, that's, it's the same guy, right? That they talked to later. And he's like, yeah, I really struggled with heroin in the, in the years to come after that. Was um, it? I might miss that. Yeah. Okay. Because, because one, one of the, yeah. one of the interview subjects who was yeah. a, who was an attendee of the thing. Yeah. talks about how like messed up his marriage in the seventies and, and, Oh, just, wow, yeah, I guess that would be him because he yeah. they don't they don't interview a lot of different people, so that would that would check out. I apologize if that's not the right person. If that's yeah. not you. I'm sorry. If that's not yeah. you. Yeah, I'm pretty, yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and I I think it's you know it's 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 great, and ultimately, I think what Questlove creates is this super positive picture of of where this hit in culture and where the culture was going yeah but but like you were also saying like he doesn't shy away from showing both sides and and the harlem specifically was was struggling yeah uh in the in the 70s and, and you know everyone i think kind of knows new york as a whole uh what kind of direction it went into the 80s but um and then you know they don't they don't get bogged down too much in the drug epidemic because then you you can you can really get deep into who caused it and and what yeah. the purpose of it was, but uh, yeah, but but it's it, it, I, I like that it makes it feel more rounded as a documentary. Whereas I feel like you know if it was just a if it was just a concert film, yeah, maybe they wouldn't dive into that. But it does make it feel more rounded that that they go out of their way to kind of show you the positive and negative uh, implications of of the music and the culture and the area yeah. in the in the times to come. 
And I think another example that I love is just, and also just to show the divide in America with Harlem and then, or Harlem, these kind of black neighborhoods in the rest of America, it's the, it's the, the moon landing section. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. That's a a lot of fun where it shows like, (laughs) it's almost fun. It's funny in a way of how it's cut together because it's showing like the white people like oh this is a great day in america like we're just everyone feels closer together yeah, everyone closer together and we're all it, americans today and, and and then it cuts to everyone in harlem as fessler just like we don't care about this like i could <laughs> care less like why where why is that money going to the moon why is the money coming to our area and it was like and he had like red fox shows up and says like a few things or whatever mm-hmm. like um he's I'll, I'll i'll stay my i'll stay in harlem as well he goes you america's gonna have the moon russia can have this but i'll, t- I'll take to harlem um but it's, it just shows the divide of like why like why is this important why why is going to the moon important when we could be funding it part parts of these these lower income places and helping out the american citizens mm. um but yeah, and I also I, I, Tony Lawrence is a really good MC that kind of like, it's it's interesting. Questlove uses Tony Lawrence very well of just kind of the a, a, a unseen voice or well, like a, a voice of the era with his great introductions to people, but he's also like kind of providing context in a way with the John Lindsay stuff, who's the mayor, mm-hmm. and and kind of the way he sets up every artist is kind of your good introduction of what these people are, what where these characters are at in their careers. Um, which is a key storytelling moment. But yeah, I think just really well done. It's a perfect balance of modern storytelling with older traditional storytelling techniques of like the late 60s with the editing style. Um, so yeah. Anything else you want to say? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, performances are great. I know we didn't talk about that, but like Mahalia Jackson, phenomenal. Glass Night in the Pips, Stevie Wonder. Um, uh, Sly the Family Stone, amazing. To a point where he gets three performance, they get three three performances and one for the finale, um, and the staple singers always, always phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go in the aftermath of this festival and then into this film. So in October 1969, writer Raymond Robinson said in the New York New York Amsterdam News that the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. So this is only by the way, like two months after the festival, he says. The 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival was indeed a meaningful entity, but was it fully appreciated? Him, he hints at the possibility that the festival would be forgotten, but the more white-centric concert festival of Woodstock would be the chosen festival that was to be remembered for the changing of the times. But someone who did not think the Harlem Cultural Festival would slip into obscurity was Tony Lawrence. After the 1969 festival, Lawrence believed he could expand the concept holding other festivals around the country with the Harlem Cultural Festival as the template. He, hmm. fir- he first staged the Love Festival in Newark, New Jersey in the fall of 1969 with Bobby Blue Bland and the Chamber Brothers as headliners. The Chamber Brothers was also at the Harlem Cultural Festival in the summer. Um, Bobby Blue Band was in the 68 Festival. Um, the event would bring in around 60,000 attendees. Um, so it was. it seems like it was a success. Um, Lawrence then began making plans to host a concert in Fayette, Mississippi with B.B. King and the Staple Singers as headliners in honor of the city's first black mayor. I don't think it happened. It just says there were plans for it. Um, but when 1970 began, Lawrence was trying to turn the festival into a full-on tour enterprise that would visit all throughout the South, the West Coast, and even internationally. Um, but as the summer of 1970 drew closer, 
Lawrence's plans soon dematerialized as the 1970 Harlem Cultural Festival was canceled due to a lack of private funds. Actually, they they said they were going to have Lincoln Center booked, is what it was in New York, um, but no one really knows what happened. <laughs> um, Lawrence would later blame former white business partners from the previous festivals for stealing funds from the festival, which prevented it from being from being or prevented it from continuing on after '69. Um, Lawrence would soon make other claims that the mafia was trying to kill him. Um, he even claimed that his car blew up at one point, but there was no evidence of this. He said that he was driving to see his friend Sidney Fortier, and his car blew up, and there was no record of this happening in like the local <laughs> news. They even apparently called Sidney Fortier's representative a few years ago, um, and Sidney Fortier said he had no recollection of who Tony Lawrence was. <laughs> um, so yeah, Lawrence would attempt, but that you'll that kind of checks out with Lawrence as I keep going. Lawrence would attempt to revitalize the festival again in 1974 but co no concerts occurred. Um, friends, of Lawrence, friends of Lawrence would begin to see less and less of him as the decade went on, with many calling him a mystery, an enigma, is what they said. Uh, in the 1980s, Lawrence would occasionally appear in local nightclubs and even act in several local plays before disappearing from the public life. To this day, there has been zero confirmation regarding Lawrence's possible death nor any records of his whereabouts. What? Yeah, there's no, no one knows what happened to him. That's crazy. Yeah. And with the festival's biggest voice completely vanishing, the history of the Harlem Cultural Festival would soon drift into obscurity. But there was the video that Hal Tolchin shot of the festival in 1969. He shot over 40 hours of the festival that summer. And what happened to that? Well, Tolchin's footage would air as part of several television specials in 1969. First, there was one. There was a one-hour special with the Fifth Dimension and the Chamber Brothers that I believe aired on CBS, and there was another one-hour special that featured Mahalia Jackson, the Staple Singers, and Reverend Jesse Jackson, and that would air on ABC in September of 1969. A further five TV specials were announced, but they never aired. Tolchin began trying to find more funding for his proposed feature-length documentary of the footage, uh, and because of the, of the popularity of Woodstock. And it's later documentary, Tolchin began pitching it with the title of Black Woodstock, but he did not attract any buyers. He would then place the tapes in his basement where they would sit for several decades, sadly destined to be unseen and forgotten. But, another but, that would change in 2003 when film archivist Joey, La Joey Laro went to Copenhagen to visit his longtime friend Carl Nunson, owner of the jazz record label Storyville, and while rummaging through Carl's records... Um, uh, that he had collected over the years. It was like records and films. Joe found a 16 millimeter print of a TV show titled Harlem Festival that was sold to far that was sold to foreign broadcasters in the early 1970s. Laro, who was the head or is the head of Historic Films in Greenport, New York, which is a small indie archive house that specializes in locating, licensing, and managing music performances and vintage TV shows and films, uh, he was unaware of what this Harlem Festival was. Um, Joe would see Hal Tolchin's name on the film film reel for the Harlem TV Festival, and he would soon track him down in New York. The two would meet for lunch with Laro, hoping to get the rights to the Harlem Festival that was an hour-long event, basically, on, on the reel, so he could digitize and archive it. What he did not know was that Tolchin had 
40 hours of videotape <laughs> from the festival. Uh, Laro said that Tolchin seemed to be happy that someone finally cared about the event. In 2004, Tolchin signed an agreement for, his, for historic films to digitize and catalog the footage. Laro would soon truck the footage out of Tolchin's house and begin licensing clips of the performances to certain documentaries and also digitizing and archiving the footage. Um, Laro would soon want to help Tolchin realize his vision of a feature-length documentary of the footage. He would partner with Robert Gordon, a Memphis-based filmmaker who did several documentaries about Stax Records and Muddy Waters, and also partnered with director Morgan Neville, who would later direct the Oscar-winning film 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, this trio put together a $450,000 budget for the film. They didn't get the money, but a budget for the film. And they cut an 11-minute trailer as a sizzle. And in 2007, they began pitching it to companies for distribution. Uh, the film would catch the eyes of Robert Fivolit. I, I apologize for mispronouncing that name. <laughs> it's it's F-Y-V-O-L-E-N-T. Fivolit? Um a lawyer at the New Market Films, a company that would finance, distribute, distribute, and possibly produce uh, such films. Uh, they did such films as Memento, The Prestige, Dying Darko, Real Women Have Curves. Um, uh, Fivelet saw the potential for this film, and according to Laro, they received a $1 million deal for the rights for the movie, allowing the footage to finally be seen. But, according to Robert Gordon, Tolchin began making new demands before the contract was signed. He wanted the footage to be turned to, into both a film and a DVD series because DVDs were really hot <laughs> in 2007. Um, that was agreed upon, but Tolchin would soon begin begin making more demands. Uh, Laro believes Tolchin just wanted more money, but Gordon believed that Tolchin was scared to put his footage into someone else's hands. Uh, that was, I mean, it's precious footage to him. Uh, the deal would fall through, and the rights to the footage would revert back to Tolchin. And, and and away from historic films. And after that happened, Tolchin actually hired uh, Fivalent to represent him and his <laughs> footage. So it ended up being a, a blessing in disguise for him that he gets the lawyer that ends up representing him. Um, but this footage would end up going back to the basement, I guess figuratively and literally, uh, away from everyone. It would take another 12 years before the project began to gain steam again, uh, but Tolchin would never see it because he would pass away in 2017 at the age of 90 years old. Wow. Um, but before he passed away, he gave the rights over to uh, gave the rights to the footage over to Fivalent, who would then try to find a future for the footage, working with several producers on the project. In 2018, a year after uh, Tolchin's uh, death, the producers the producers would reach out to Amir Questlove Thompson telling him they had footage of this Harlem music festival that had performances like last night, sign the family stone, BB King, Nina Simone, and a very young Stevie wonder. Thompson said his first reaction was the arrogant music snob in me was the arrogant music snob in me was like, this never happened. If it happened, <laughs> if it would happen, I'd know about it. Yeah. Um, Thompson would then ask some of his New York friends like Spike Lee and Nile Rogers, if they had heard of this event and they had not. Thompson would then agree to meet with the producers uh, to talk about the project. Um, what he didn't know is they were going to actually bring him footage. So they showed up at the Tonight Show set and they met with him, showed him the footage of the film, and he said, my draw dropped. I was like, you're telling me there's more than 40 hours of this footage and no one's ever seen this shit? 
<laughs> he couldn't figure out why this sat in the basement for 50 years. Uh, the producers and Violent would then ask Questlove to direct a feature film of the footage, but Questlove was kind of hesitant. He dodged them for like several months, feeling that he could direct no more than a music video. I think he said he even he said I suggested them to go to Ava DuVernay. That was who they should mm-hmm. get to do this movie. Um, Violence that never they never he never said that. That might just have been like a a, a argument that Questlove was having in his head, basically, of or especially <laughs> having his head. Um, but Questlove soon realized that he didn't want anyone else to tell this story but him. He realized that his experience uh, as a musician and a standing music scholar were advantages to interviewing musicians who performed at the festival. Mm-hmm. But Questlove's initial plan was just to show the footage as it was, letting it play as a straight concert, not providing any context to the period. He he looked at another film that recently been re- or a recent film that had been released, uh, Amazing Grace, which was was Aretha Franklin's concert film mm-hmm. where Sidney Pollock had shot it in like a, in a Baptist church in LA, I believe. And it was also just sat around for 40 years or 50 years before yep. finally being released. He's like, oh, I'm going to do it like that. But he said, on a whim, I randomly decided to tweet out a question to his followers. And he asked if they had attended or knew anyone that attended the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. One of the DMs he received was from Musa Jackson, an event producer who said he was five years old at the time of the festival. He's the one who's the opening opening interview of the movie. Mm-hmm. Questlove did not think interviewing Jackson about his memories would be beneficial to the movie, but he decided to do it anyway. He said, Musa said, this is my first memory in life when wow. he saw the footage. And Questlove knew that he needed to do more interviews to round out this movie. Mm-hmm. One of the main things Questlove wanted to capture with the film was the idea of black erasure, an idea that American history is written through the white gaze with black voices in history being ignored, forgotten, or worse. He wanted to show that people of color in America in the late 1960s were not just dominated by the history of marches, protests, beatings, and the murders of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. He realized the story was capturing a paradigm shift in black music and black culture in America. The example he proved, again, he said, was David Ruffin of The Temptations coming out in, like, kind of, suit, not suit and tie, but very, like, uh, fancy garb, basically. Like mm-hmm. a, more, a more pristine kind of costume or, or wardrobe. And then Sign of the Family Stone comes out, and you're like, these people are on the verge of something else, and they're the verge of the new era. Um, Questlove managed to get forty hours, get the forty hours edited down to two hours by breaking the footage down to twenty-four hours first. So he did forty hours, then twenty-four hours. After seeing with that cut for several months, he was then able to whittle it down to three and a half hours. Wow! Before, before finally cutting it down to two and a half, or for for two hours, basically. That's uh, insane. The whole process took a total of five months to do. Um, and I think I guess he was doing a lot of it during COVID. I think mm-hmm. they said he said like went off and like he went off to like a buy a home in the country and was like living off doing all that stuff. Um, the film would then be accepted into the Sundance Film Festival in 2021, where it would become a pretty big hit with audiences there. Yeah, the the Grand Jury Prize for for best documentary, and also the Audience Award for for favorite documentary of the of the festival. It would get glowing reviews from critics. Um, it would be released in theaters and actually make three point seven million dollars, uh, which is pretty pretty good for a documentary, honestly. Yeah, especially absolutely. for one, especially in a in a COVID world, 
because like you said it was june 2021 and covid was still like people were starting to go to the movies depending on where you're at in the country because like i remember mm-hmm. certain theaters did not open in la until may of 2021 so it's just, this is very very fresh uh off covid um to make that much money and also it was released on streaming around the same exact time so like it was a pretty pretty decent success um it would then go on and be nominated for best documentary at the oscars where it would win best documentary at the oscars and pretty much win every best documentary award of the year every critics choice and and indie spirit awards and everything that was available um so yeah and with that we're still fairly fresh with this movie and so hopefully its legacy continues to grow and grow. Um, there was a 50th anniversary festival to celebrate the Harlem, Harlem Cultural Festival in 2019 um, that took place over three days. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the festival's reputation is continuing to kind of be brought back to the light, basically. And hopefully this movie continues uh, to do that and people still find it. So So yeah. So Thomas, what worked about this movie? I mean, obviously, just the the treasure trove of footage that yeah. they that they turned up. It's um, you know, we talked we talked in the uh, in the last Waltz episode about it being kind of like the the Avengers of music at that point, but like this blows that out of the water. Just you know, so many incredible, influential artists from so many different genres of music is yeah. it's crazy, and and you know, there's something it's it's such a wild festival to put on because there really is kind of something for everybody there and 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 that's something else i love you were talking about kind of the audience reactions you know when they would have like kind of the old school gospel uh performers there and to cut out to the audience and see the the younger people who are who are dressed more like sly and the family stone uh also singing along with with that music is it's really shows the the pervasiveness of of specifically gospel music mm-hmm. within r&b i mean within soul music you know um but yeah i think just to to have come across i can't imagine what it was like for like you said that guy who who first dug up the initial footage of yeah. it or, or like you were saying with quest love to be like nah there's no way that happened that's <laughs> like all those people, people? Are, are yeah yeah and it's it's not it, you know it's not like and and that's kind of the the i guess the power of black erasure is like you're not talking about obscure artists here you're talking about some of the biggest names in the history of music mm-hmm. all performed together and 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 names that have you know can, have had prominence throughout yeah. history but but still this this happening was yeah. just completely erased and i'm just like like artists that became big like artists that were big mm-hmm. <laughs> like stevie yeah, exactly. wonder was big at this time yeah last nina simone pips, had, had been huge yeah. for 20 years at that yeah. point like last night the pips were big at this point yeah. like and it was just like no i'm not gonna talk <laughs> about it and they said one of the reasons why it was kind of hard to sell that footage was because at that point there were only three networks and if none of the three networks wanted to, to have it it just didn't go anywhere mm-hmm. and i do wonder if how tolchin would have tried say in the set later in the 70s or in the 80s or even the 90s could it have been made possibly mm-hmm. um but it seems like it almost feels like he 
I'm assuming here, but almost heartbroken because no one wanted it early on. And he just, I, I think, didn't want to bring up the pain of it all. Because I'm going with them saying like how he didn't want to hand over the footage initially because it seemed like he could be scared of handing it over mm-hmm. to someone else. And I wonder if he didn't attempt to do it for for the years after because it was it it didn't go as well when trying to pitch it the first time yeah um that's yeah that's understandable and i also want you also wonder if someone like tony lawrence would have became bigger and and didn't essentially go missing basically is what sounds like Um, yeah exactly and if you know if the if the festival itself had had a more last you know if they, they continued to if he had continued to put it on through the 70s um you know if it if it hadn't have been kind of thwarted yeah uh, and so it, it was more of a cultural touchstone as well because i mean you do have at least two more major woodstock kind of productions that that went on that that continued the name for better for better or for worse but it was it was 94 the other one what was it, it was it was yeah it was the the, the yeah it was nine it was the however many year it was the 25 year yeah basically and that was the one that went like went over fairly well and then 99 was yeah 94 was one that like did like oh that was it was decent um and uh, let's do it again in five years and then 99 was where everything just went crazy (laughs) um yeah you just you wonder what my hat i know quest love said like he wished he would have saw this at a younger age because it could have influenced him more um in in several ways Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think again the way he's able they're able to again find this footage decades later create a story around it um but also just showing the um how authentic like basically the the like these raw kind of performances from these from these artists mm-hmm. um and this i mean it's like it's and then also it's, like, it's not just like they perform in like a uh a, a basement somewhere it's like they're performing in a park with thousands thousands of people and it's it's again an emotional moments the end when musa jackson's just like when him and quest love kind of banter of like it's real i'm not crazy it's like <laughs> it's, it's like it's like to him it's like this was just a thing that, that was that happened that no one ever talked about again and it's almost mm-hmm. like did i dream this up somewhere did i like because no one I know, one I know knows this event, but I know I was there, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. It's, well, and there's it's, there's also a really special aspect to it. I think if you if you dig kind of deeper into these artists and all their careers, because you know the the fact of the matter is, and they they bring it up with the Motown records, was the fact of the matter is, uh, you're to to be economically feasible in that point in time, you still had to appeal to a white audience in some yeah. way. And, and so even these just absolute legends like Nina Simone, it's, you're, you're getting to, to put them up in a, in a festival in Harlem that is primarily, primarily black audience. And to mm-hmm. say like this festival is celebrating black culture. I think you're, you're getting a, a much more kind of freed perform. They're, they're not trying to kind of filter themselves for white America in any sort yeah. of way. I, I think it is a, a a much more natural and free performance for a lot of, for a lot of the people performing there. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, so anything not work about this movie, Thomas, <laughs> uh, 
No, I don't, I, I've, I've got nothing. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I had an, an absolute blast watching it. And um, if, if anything didn't work, I'd love a, I'd love to see the 24 hour cut. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, how, yeah, it's almost like, how put this either make it shorter or longer if that makes sense yeah it's 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 really snappy as it is like i, yeah, I had yeah. no no runtime issues but um but yeah to know how much more footage there is i'm just like when are we gonna get the you know the, yeah the, the 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 cut that's like the um you know peter jackson's yeah six hour be. beatles cut yeah, yeah yeah um the get back cut yeah i i know quest love is doing a sly sly and the family stone documentary next so okay. there'll probably be some footage in there from that. But like, I mean, you could honestly uh, talking about, there's not, I mean, you have this on a streaming service, but like if you want to do like Tolchin's initial um, idea or one of his not initial ideas, but one of his ideas of like doing a series on it. I mean, you could do with that much footage, you could probably just break it up. Like, like the concerts were of like, you're going to do just, uh, blues music for this episode yeah yeah exactly gospel for this episode and you can you can add more context um around people who were who were there who performed uh people who didn't perform um you could really dive into it even more which is a kind of insane thing how much you could go into this um so yeah so yeah i basically it's day and night work it, it could have been longer <laughs> um so yeah only only film fact i have because i mean i feel like a lot of the the history of the movie <laughs> is just film facts the one that i was when watching it i go oh i know this name uh because i talked about him in the elvis special is that bones bones how how who is the fifth dimensions producer it's, it's a throwaway line um uh he helped them like do aquarius was the thing he was one let's mm. let's re- record this he was the uh music producer or like a he was he was involved in the music side, but music music producer on uh, Elvis's comeback special. That was kind of his transitional oh, okay. transitional period, and that's a year and that's a year before this. So again, that's all kind of happening around the same time as well. Um, so yeah, awards. So we'll again kind of changing up this month. Um, the Am Schlesinger, I guess, performance award or mu- or song award is what we're doing. <laughs> Musical performance award. Yeah. I think it's one of two for me. A lot of great ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I have either Precious Lord Take My Hand with Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, I Want to Take You Higher by Sly and the Family Stone. Um, those are those are my two kind of Yeah, picks. I think it's I think it's Mahalia Jackson for me, but I, I do want to shout out I it, it's I, it's not necessarily like the strongest performance, but I think the best kind of like sequence as far as like the editing and the way they put it together. I love the Nina Simone, like uh, uh, what was it? Young, black and talented mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how they cut that in, with, gifted, especially because yeah, young, young, black and, and gifted. gifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They cut that in with the, the writer from the New York times that we've been getting kind of her cultural mm-hmm. uh, input the whole time. And then she gives her story about being one of the first, uh, students to uh, integrate into a white college and how yeah in Georgia yeah and how kind of supportive Nina Simone was like this is really specific anecdote of, about yeah. Nina Simone so then to take that and mash this up with this and then you know she goes on to become this very influential writer for the New York Times so to take that and mash it up with this song from Nina Simone about kind of being young black and gifted is is mm-hmm. I, it's such a great uh 
I think that that was probably my favorite kind of melding of yeah. of interview and music of the of the whole episode or oh, yeah. of the whole film. Of a modern the modern perspective with the old older perspective or the, mm-hmm. the original perspective. But yeah, I think it's I think it's that and, and especially getting that story from Mavis Staples uh mm-hmm. kind of getting the context around that performance is it, and and having Jesse Jackson there. It's yeah, it's all it, it's it's great it, it, and it feels yeah it's a it's a great midpoint for the movie yeah. for sure oh yeah and, and it's the passing of the torch is kind of mm-hmm. what he said i mean it signifies the, and it, it's and yeah maybe Sable's kind of talking about like how like mahalia like turns to her and says like hey i can't you need to help me sing this one uh i don't am strong enough and just how powerful that performance is is just mm-hmm. is insane um so we're going with that one and also, I think talking about the context of it, you're, it's it's this tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the context of how this is his favorite song. And if this festival is there to honor black culture and this specific night day is a remembrance of Dr. King a year later, um, it, it's it's kind of it's a very landmark performance in this in this film. Um, all right, we're, we'll do. Um, the Annie Potts X Factor Award, who has supported basically, who one of the, one of the performers? Who do you pick as the the one that stands out the most with this? I mean, I think it's Stevie Wonder for me, but but mm. Sly Sly Stone you know, Sly Stone is 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 really really dynamic as well. But um, yeah, I think it's Stevie Wonder, especially to kind of intro the. Yeah the show and 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 like you were saying the way that they kind of position him at this point in his career where he's where he's figuring out what to go where to go and 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 kind of then it's just you see him kind of doing this like funk jam session on stage and you're like yeah obviously he's going into funk he's he's moving into it he's seeing he's seeing well it's funny that's the one time like chris rock just pops in for an interview at one point Mm -hmm. he's just like he's like steve could just sat there and 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 not changed a thing and he would have been fine for the rest of his career but he like needed to move. He needed to like evolve as an artist, mm-hmm. basically. Um, yeah, I think Stevie or Sly. There's a reason why Stevie opens the movie and Sly closes the movie, because you're ending on you're you're beginning and ending on probably two of the highs of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think the Sly and the Family Stone one was like that was the pre- first performance of the festival. That's how people <laughs> kept coming back. I feel like, like yeah, yeah, we're doing this. Like, um, so yeah, I I think. I love Sly, family, Sly in this, but I, I'll go with Stevie too because I think Stevie, you see, I mean, all, I mean, oh, this is tough. <laughs> you see the variety of just their musicianship is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're gonna say argue, because we get to actually hear Stevie talk on that he actually is interviewed, mm-hmm. and you kind of hear his context, I could, I would, I would go with Stevie Wonder on this one for Annie Potts. Okay. The Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie. This is this is a, a interesting one. Who do you go um, with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I I think it's really incredible what Questlove does here, but he also doesn't. He kind of goes out of his way to not. I, I was kind of expecting, especially because he's in the trailer. They they have him mm, kind of as a talking head in the trailer, yeah. and then he's not in yeah. the movie. So I was expecting kind of a lot more Questlove commentary that I got. But um, 
honestly, it, I, I probably have to give it to Tony because the entire time I was sitting watching this, I was just like, how the hell did someone put this together? This is yeah. insane. And then he's he's a great presence like as the MC on, throughout the, the film as well. And, and he, like you were saying, I mean, I, I think, you, you know, Questlove does a very good job of structuring the film, but Tony seemed to also do a great job of structuring the festival. The festival. And he yep. knows when he's doing these intros, like the 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 cultural implications and the and the cultural ideas and the genre ideas behind the structure are, are very clear there. And he's he's kind of telling like it's he's like he's giving people like a, a music history lesson sometimes your, when he's he, introducing he, these. He's he's almost the film's narrator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's it's all there in the thesis it's kind of it's it's kind of the opposite of what we talked about with last waltz is like this is what yep. robert robertson wanted and this is what it yep. turned into but it, it all kind of plays out exactly like he envisions it yeah which which is it's bittersweet in a way mm -hmm. too where you know that lawrence to our knowledge doesn't see his vision continue like mm -hmm. with this um but yeah, he is very much, he sets everybody up very well of where they're at in their careers at this moment. Again, it's it's like he's a he's an extra talking head for you. Mm -hmm. But it, it's um it's honestly almost shocking. I mean, again, hist historically it's not shocking because of what was what was like in America uh at this time, but like he's charismatic, he's a good MC. He's a good promoter, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And and it doesn't really nothing it, it, it kind of just ends here for him mm -hmm. and that's and that's sad to see um but yeah i think lawrence i think he again like i said because he's able to he's able to build it from 67 to 68 to 69 and he knew when to kind of take the leap to make it bigger mm -hmm. um the pro i guess the problem was that he tried to make it even bigger the next year or something when he, he, he probably could have maybe just try to make something like this again and then build it up into a bigger kind of enterprise like he was wanting um but yeah i think he's the kind of he he's he's the i mean it's how Tolkien does a great job of which don't see him but like he's trying to get them made for so many years but lawrence is kind of the voice that i think if he didn't disappear honestly i think it would mm -hmm. he would have found a way to carry it on later on i think he would yeah. try it again in the 80s i think he would have tried it again in the 90s um but that didn't happen yeah and i, th I think it would have been nearly impossible to kind of put together a structure of this of, of this 40 hours worth of footage if he hadn't already if structured hadn't it so You're well right. in the You're first right. place i agree with that so all right so tony lawrence the gene hackman mvp award okay final questions how does this film fit with the concert film genre what does it do that we've seen this month and all i that? think i think it's the, the the closest to a documentary that, that we've yeah. seen this month um yes but that's also because you know it's it is spanning this kind of entire summer worth of shows it's it's not you can't just do the little like slice of life concert type yeah. of thing it is it's a full festival um but i i also think it is like i think you said at the top of the show it's 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 the most amount of retrospection we get in in anything that we've seen mm -hmm. here this month you know it's it's kind of keep comparing it back to the peter jackson beatles documentary because it, that's also uh kind of this sudden discovery as, of a treasure trove worth of footage and and then the ability to to put it together with with years and years of of 
knowledge looking back on it and and so they both kind of feel similar in the same way um as as and, and so it does become you know we've talked about how a lot of these were these time capsules but kind of by accident like yeah you know they, they didn't necessarily know that 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 they were saying this is this is what this period was like when they were making it kind of mm-hmm. but but with this one Questlove has the ability to do that and i think that that makes it really kind of stand out and and something a little bit more separate from the rest yeah i agree with all that i think i think it it is able to take what we're what we've seen as a concert film these these past few episodes as like oh it's time capsule but he's able to actually see that as well and um amplify it even more basically is what ends up happening um which again really leans into the idea of the concert film not just being a taped performance but Mm -hmm. a a snapshot of a period in time of uh a community of an artist uh and just of a of a time of a culture is the Mm -hmm. thing um so yeah it's a very it's a very welcoming addition to the concert film genre and a very very unique one i think at that um all right final genre questions what were some movies we didn't talk about this month that you want to shout out here thomas um i i i shouted out the song remains the same a couple of times but but that's one that that i really like Mm -hmm. um the who have a couple really good ones that that were filmed that that i really enjoy um that but that also kind of speaks to again speaks to my specific musical taste um I'm trying to think of what what's something I've seen that's a little bit more. I mean, there's there's been some really interesting ones done lately that that are much more kind of lean, much more into documentary, but are, yeah. are worth checking out. I like Olivia Rodrigo's kind of sour tour mm-hmm. uh, documentary. Um, and then of course, I mean, we t- we talked about Woodstock, but you got you got to see Woodstock for yeah. for better or for worse. You got. <laughs> You, you got to check it out. Not to hate on Woodstock. Not, not yeah, to hate yeah, on Woodstock yeah. here. It's just it's we we have a lot more uh, you know we have a lot more retrospection on that now, and it's it's just kind of funny to watch it and everybody be like, "This is it. We did it. Like peace and love." And it's like, "No, you didn't." Well, <laughs> I, I will say with Woodstock because I, I have one story. I, I have one story on Woodstock, and I have a separate story on finding footage years later. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the tangent of this question. No, I, they were showing a, a a movie about Woodstock at the New Art Theater a few years ago. I think it was called like uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like it was it, it was more about the actual planning and and the execution of the festival, and not really about the the performance or whatever performers mm-hmm. or whatever. But I was outside uh, talking to a guy I know that works there, and this lady comes up. She's like, "Hey, she's like, we're we're coming to this movie." She's like, "Um." But uh, uh, we saw the trailer, and uh, I think it was the husband's parents or it was her parents. Like, oh, they're p- we saw them together in the trailer, and it was actually they met at Woodstock and then got married after leaving Woodstock, and they oh, had wow. zero pictures from them at Woodstocks together. And on the trailer, there's an image, there's like footage of them together at Woodstock. And so it was for some people, it was a great experience. And for many people, it was a great experience. It's just more just, I, I look back at the people who planned it is kind of the, the thing is what I look at mm. the most. Uh, my second brief story on finding footage years later. Um, I, never, I don't know if I told you this story. Or if, I, don't, I know I haven't told it on the show, but when I was working at the video store, we got a call from some lady at one point 
and she's like, hey, I found a bunch of film reels down at the dumpster by 7-Eleven. <laughs> um, do you guys want it? And they're like, sure. And I don't know why we said sure. But like, and they said, go, go. And I had to go drive this lady's apartment in Santa Monica. And I felt like I was like Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction when he walks in that kind of like courtyard mm-hmm. apartment. I was like walking in an apartment just like that. And I walked in this lady's apartment door and she has like just a stack of like film canisters and then like the film reel canisters that you have that have the full thing in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And I get it all. We take it back. And it's like the raw foot, like the dailies of this, whatever this film is. And I'm like, am I about to get like a snuff film or something on, <laughs> on here? Um, and we actually were able to play it at the new art, like during a break. Cause it was, we realized it was a short and it was a unreleased. This is a very niche thing. An unreleased short film from a group called the Hudson brothers. Mm-hmm. It was Kate Hudson's dad is in it is like kind of a, kind of a musical group there and they're trying to make like a Marx brothers type short film <laughs> and i have looked this movie up there is there is no uh records or anything of this film i could find online so i have like the only copy uh or one of the only copies of this and it's a film reel so wow Huts, hudson brothers if you're listening i have it um but no, so movies that i i want to shout out that we didn't talk about monterey pop is the big one i i would love to talk about monterey pop because I think that's the 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 Woodstock that we should talk about more because it has almost the same exact people. I think at more interesting points in their career, let's like Jimi Hendrix is just coming over from England again. Janis Joplin is just kind of uh, getting bigger. You have Otis Redding as part of it. You have um, Mamas and the Papas, um, and it's just a really phenomenal uh, phenomenal uh, film. But streaming on HBO Max and Criterion, so go watch it if you can. Amazing Grace is great uh, with Aretha Franklin. Um, the came that finally came out a few years ago, um, and I really like uh, uh, Chuck Berry's Hell Hell Rock and Roll, which uh, is kind of his. I can't remember what what birthday it was, but base it's 60th birthday, and Keith Richards basically puts together a band to play for Chuck Berry's uh, 60th birthday. It's like him, Eric Clapton, Robert Cray, and has all his performances with like Linda Ronstadt and Etta James. It's just kind of this really cool celebration of his music and of that era of music. So that's a fun one. I have a poster. In would, you, would you consider uh, company, D.A. Pennebaker's company documentary? Interesting, interesting. Concert film? I don't know because they're they're not actually putting on a concert is the thing. Mm, it's just kind of its own thing. But they are performing. Um, I would love to talk about that at some point. <laughs> I, can. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I would love to. Uh, but yeah, those are mine. Uh, and then the final question: what What did you learn this month, Thomas? I, I learned I would not want to edit. <laughs> I mean, just just the amount of footage. At least with at least with Scorsese and and with the Last Waltz, they kind of pre-edited. You know, he sat down with yeah. that script and was like, "I'm not going to shoot this. I'm not going to shoot this." But like, such a Marty move. Such a Marty move. Yeah, but I, I can't imagine when I mean, you're like, "Oh yeah, they whittled it down to a 24 hour cut." I'm like, "It's going to take you a full day to watch just it. to watch your sec- <laughs> your your like first rough cut like that." It's insane to me. How do you make a decision there? Um, but I guess truly like your personal taste has to come through there. You have to be yep. like, Oh, I like this Sly and the family stone song better than I like that one. Um, 
it's just it's just wild to me but uh but yeah and and you know i've, I've learned that it, documentary filmmaking is still kind of beyond me but the the way that you just kind of have to let everybody go let everybody yeah. talk yeah. and then you sit down with it and you figure out what your story is and and i think watching these this month it, it shows that 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 type of approach applies as just as much which I, which i guess is why you know a lot of like like da pennebaker and the mazels mm-hmm. uh kind of why they also did concert films is 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 yep. it, it is very similar even if you're not doing one that's as straightforward a documentary as, as this one was today you still do kind of need that documentarian's uh mindset of being like i'm just gonna watch everything that we got leave my mind completely open and then we're gonna figure out what this movie is uh which is which is not exactly what scorsese did but he did as as we kind of said in our episode he did kind of figure out what the story was in in the aftermath as far as like the band themselves <laughs> goes yeah i mean it's interesting you kind of have to have this with documentary you have to have this viewpoint of a narrative storyteller but also like a live tv editor because mm-hmm. you're having to see like where where should the camera be and in some cases you can't control where the camera is so you have to find the footage to like we gotta paint the picture this way um if it's like i said them him quest love cutting to the kids in the audience um during the bb king performance just because he sees a look of a kid that he gives or he's eyeing the camera and smiling or whatever um or if it's yeah or even with things like prince and last or last waltz and stop making sense they kind of choose not to show the audience is the thing um I, yeah, the big thing I learned coming into this, as I, I've said several, several times in this episode, is the idea of this transitional period and this time capsule of a traditional transitional period. If it's stopped making sense with the breaking up of the producer, Last Waltz with kind of end of an era, Prince the new band, and then this is kind of a in, transitioning into a new era of black music and black culture. I wasn't mm-hmm. really expecting that. But it also goes back to, I mean, in, in a straightforward narrative, how music can be a timestamp for something like Scorsese. Scorsese does this really well in a lot of his films of he uses music as your, here's where we're at in time. If it's Goodfellas when he, when he chooses the tracks he does, but this, these, or these films show like this song shows we're in a period at this point, because with say Prince's sign of the times, Prince chooses not to to do any of his songs that came out before Sign of the Times. And it's just straight Sign of the Times songs. Um, so you know you're in this era of Prince. Um, and so, yeah, it's just I, I didn't expect that coming in. Because, uh, I again, I just see it as like, oh, it's just a band's performing and maybe a cool director gets involved and they want to shoot this person's stuff and that's about it. But I think the ones that really stand out are the ones that really lean into that time capsule or in some cases that trans showing the transition of a person like we talked about with elvis and the comeback special on the patreon um or next week we're talking about uh nirvana unplugged and how that was that you're seeing these kind of specific periods in these artists life and career um and these performances these films kind of showcase that transition mm-hmm. i wasn't fully it wasn't part of the thesis of the, of the month basically yeah that's what we do a lot of times. We don't really come up with a thesis. We just pick a genre, <laughs> and the thesis just finds itself. I think a lot yeah, of the time. much like documentary filmmakers. Exactly. So hey. we kind of the concert films are about transitional periods and re- reinvention and time capsules. So wonderful. Um, 
And so with that, uh, next next month, or well, also just to plug the Patreon real quick, we're doing, I mean, we we, we did a Elvis comeback special. I did this past week. Next week, we're kind of ending this this concert film month with Nirvana Unplugged and Nirvana at Paramount, hopefully, if I can find it. Um, so yeah, go check that out. Patreon, people are really loving it from people I've, I've talked to. Um, thank you so much for that support there. Uh, $1, $5, $10 for the tiers. So please go do that. Um, now next month for our main series in this podcast, we're talking about, we've never actually just done this straight. We talked about this before recording time. So we've done a lot of different variations of this genre, but now we're doing the full, the full thing. And that is the romantic comedy genre for February. Um, we're doing, uh, when Harry met Sally for sure. Um, and then we're doing crazy, stupid love. And the plan is to end the month with, um, the filmography of Richard Curtis, who did, who direct wrote and directed uh, Love Actually, About Time, Pirate Radio, but he also wrote movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary. We're getting very British next month, or that for that episode. <laughs> and then we'll have we have one more we have still have planned, but that's that's what's on the the docket for next month. So stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, that's all we have for this episode and for this month. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sendationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments nice words just tell us you like us i don't know do whatever you want um and if you're a new listener of the show or if you're a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us be sure to subscribe to the nation podcast to stay up to date on all of our new episodes you can subscribe to our show on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, stitcher or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. We don't want somebody years from now to find our podcast in a dumpster behind 7-Eleven. We need you, <laughs> need you to go out and make those reviews, make those recommendations now so you can get the word out. Yeah, I don't want to be behind a dumpster at 7-Eleven in five years. That's, that's, the, that's <laughs> the big thing. So if you keep if you keep doing reviews, that'll help us not be there. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's what's the what's the next one up from 7-Eleven. 7-Elevens, they actually, they're mounting a big comeback this year. I saw an article about that. So, you know, that might not be that much of an insult. Yeah, I mean, uh, gas station food is very hot right now. Um, Bucky's, Wawa. So 7-Elevens, they're doing a lot of remodels to get a little piece of that. So there you go. There's your, invest in 7-Eleven. There's your uh, financial advice for the day. We do not give financial advice. I'm (laughs) going to purpose that right now. Do not take it as, as, as scripture here. Um, but if you want to, feel free. Um, and finally, don't forget to land follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.